Uh, we are in part 20 of our Isaiah series. And it's fitting that we give Lance a break because about 49 chapters into Isaiah, any person deserves a break, okay? This is a hard, long book of prophecy and of judgment and really of hope if we look at it through the right lens. And so this morning, the lens we're looking at the passage through is uh, through our title this morning, which is Awaken to Reality. And awakening to reality means that we wake up to the, the reality that our perspective, that our view of things from our human eyes is not always uh, like, it, like reality is, right? I mean, right now, there's people tuning in on the internet to watch uh, our Bridgeway services today. And doesn't it blow your mind that in reality, that there are satellites circling the earth right now? Isn't that like kind of hard to think about and imagine? Like in reality, there's stuff out there we can't see going on. And it's funny to me because in reality... And for the beginning part of, of this, you know, the few millennia, people believed that the earth was the center of the universe. I mean, some, some truths that have become scientific facts now to us were things that were not obvious to people in the beginning. Because if you think about planet earth, here we sit, if you are just somebody in the first century, you know, or earlier, and you're looking at the sky, what's moving in your mindset, Right. Is, is the earth moving? Are you spinning in circles? Or do the heavenly bodies move across the sky because the earth is fixed on moving in the center of the universe and everything else is just going by in front because the sun goes by, the moon goes by, the constellations go by. And people thought, literally, up until the 1500s that the earth was the center of the universe and everything else revolved around it. Does that idea sound familiar at all? It will in just a minute. So the, this, this view, though, of the universe is called the geocentric view of the reality. It's the idea that, that around the earth spins the cosmos, that our earth and our world is the center of the universe. And there's a guy, a smart guy, who took all the astronomical and scientific findings of uh, Greek and, and Roman history up to that point, and around 100 AD, as the, as the Bible was being concluded, the New Testament writings, there's a guy named Ptolemy, and he sat down and he drew a picture with the earth in the middle, and with all these circles around it, and he published this book. And so uh, this became fact, scientific fact, up until the Middle Ages. It wasn't until, uh, the, like I said, the 1500s when some smarter people came along and started looking into the sky and said, I don't know if that adds up, that we are what it's all about, that Earth is in the middle. And then there's this guy named Copernicus who comes along in the mid-1500s. You guys heard of Copernicus, probably. And he comes along, and he starts to do the math, and he's got a little bit more science, a little bit more, uh, you know, uh, arithmetic on his side, and he starts to, to chart the orbits of the planets around the Earth. And he realizes it's not circles, but, but some of them are, are kind of ovals. And he goes, wait a second, I don't think we're in the middle at all. And his findings, and when he recorded that the sun is actually the center of our universe, our existence, as much as he thought, that view is called the heliocentric view of the universe. And that was, well, the sun is what's fixed in the middle, and we're all going around that flaming ball in the sky that gives us light and heat. And that was earth-shattering for people. I mean, it was a paradigm shift. All of a sudden, people who thought that we were stationary, fixed in the middle, the point of all creation, all of a sudden they're going, wait a second. So you're saying that we're on this, this you know, basically this globe that's hurtling around the sun at 67,000 miles per hour through space, and we're the ones moving? And, you know, this is, this is the reality is confirmed because there's a guy named Galileo who comes along with one of the first telescopes. You guys know Galileo? Galileo, Galileo, right? So... <laughs> From the Queen song, so same guy, different era, okay? This is earlier. Still important, though, because he made it into a Queen song, right? So 
So he takes one of the first telescopes and he looks up there and he says, sure enough, Copernicus has it right. And they draw a new picture. Now they got the sun in the middle of the universe here with the earth and all the planets circling around it. And Copernicus and Galileo confirmed, yeah, there's a new paradigm for reality. And the funny thing to me is, is that no sooner had they written that down, you know, and for the next 500 years, people believe, yeah, the sun is the center of the universe and everything we see up in the sky, is just simply a part of this, this galaxy that we belong in. And up until the 1920s, people thought, scientists believed that when you look up in the night sky, the whole of the stars in the universe were contained in our galaxy, in our little section of the neighborhood. And I'll show you guys um, uh, in just a second what that looks like here. But if we look at this, okay, this picture here is what I'm talking about. The Milky Way galaxy, okay, they thought that, that everything's contained here. But in reality, uh, the, the, the universe is much bigger. And what appeared to be from them little fuzzy patches, little fuzzy patches they called nebulas, were actually compilations of galaxies, entire clusters of, of galaxies. And so this universe picture here is, is just a picture. This is literally a picture taken in space because these telescopes keep going further and further out. They keep taking more and more pictures. And the reality is, as we in our modern day age understand where we stand in the cosmos, we are not nearly as big as we once thought we were. And the more that scientists look into space and the further that those satellites and those telescopes peer, the more we realize that we are small and infinitesimal in the scope of eternity. And here's a humbling fact. How many of you guys uh, in elementary school learned that there were nine planets? Anybody? I was so shocked and disappointed when after I had memorized with great detail the nine planets of our Earth, and my science teacher in elementary school taught me to remember it this way. My very educated mother just served us nine pizzas, okay? So you got, track with me, Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, Pluto, okay? That's how you pass a science exam in third grade, okay? (laughs) Kids can remember pizzas. Well, I was shocked because here we are. I mean, this is the 20th century. Now we're in the 21st century. And we can't even figure out how many planets are in our solar system anymore. In our neck, in our neck of the woods, in our neighborhood. Because recently Pluto has been, has been kicked off because it's a, they call it a dwarf planet now. And so now it's just my very educated mother just served us noodles or something like that there is no p at the end of it anymore because we can't even figure out again how how our our own solar system is functioning here and that embarrassing fact that the further we look and the smarter we get the smaller we appear in the scope of the universe is a paradigm shift it's an awakening to the reality that we are not what it's all about and as we as we consider that truth this morning the understanding that we need to come to is that then when we look at the galaxy Our sun, our our neighborhood, is just a a drop in the bucket. That our sun, which which everyone thought was the center of the universe at one point in time, is is literally one of 200 billion stars in our Milky Way galaxy. And scientists have recently confessed that they have underestimated the number of stars they thought were in the universe by three times. This is within the last three years they said, you know what? As we look at it further... We think there's actually three times more stars than what we thought. They think there's a mind-blowing 300 sextillion stars. I don't even know what that number means <laughs> in, in the universe. That's literally, it's, it's a three followed by 23 zeros. That's mind-blowing. Or three trillion times 100 billion. And that's crazy because of the billions of, of galaxies that must be out there, the sextillion plus stars that must be in the universe here. What blows my mind is that God knows each of those stars by name. 
And that if we believe that there's, there's design and intelligence, and we didn't get here by a chaotic explosion with all the mass in the universe, but this place is way bigger than one tiny explosion could ever create, that God literally spoke creation into being. And he set it up like this, so the further we look, the smaller we get, and the more we understand that God is a great big God. And what God wants us to realize is that, that our tendency to put ourselves at the center of the universe is, is wrong. It's an egocentric view of the universe, which you and I have to get over. And if you consider the word egocentric, okay, because we say that word sometimes, you know, you know, so-and-so is pretty egocentric, right? And we say it like to kind of diss people. But ego means self. It's that psychology term for me, right? And centric means that everything's revolving around me. And the confession we have to have today is that we are egocentric people, that we think the world is revolving around us, the universe revolves around us. And how do I know this? Because every time I get stuck in gridlock traffic on Highway 80, I hear the universe come to a screeching halt around me. And I just know for a second that, that this is the universe out to stop me, out to get me. Because you're sitting there and you're looking at your clock and you're going, man, I've got places to go, you know, and you're frustrated or you're in Target. Target should be the happiest place in the universe, right? Next to Disneyland. I love Target. I could kill a bill. You know, I go to Target to waste time. And it's funny because I'll go there for, you know, for recreational shopping. And here I am in line now. And all of a sudden, you know, my day wasn't in a hurry. But the person, three people in front of me, when they start having that little problem with the card where they're swiping it and it doesn't work, I start to go, oh, man. <laughs> Don't you realize how important I am that you're slowing me down right now? And there are, there are if, we're, if we're honest, if we confess, when people are late... Or they don't show up for appointments and things they say to do. What do we do? You go, man, how inconsiderate of them. You know, don't they know i got stuff to do? And then we turn around and we flake or we're late or we forget about something. And it's no big deal. Because we're just going around our little universe and everything else is spinning around us. And so this perspective shift we have to have is that this understanding this morning that's foundational is to fill in the blank in the outline in front of you. And it's this. Is that the reality is it's not about you. It's not about you. And you go, yeah, someone told me that before. <laughs> I've heard that from my parents and from my boyfriend and my girlfriend or from my spouse. And they just keep saying, yeah, it's not about you. And we understand this philosophically. But when it comes to how we act and how we live our lives, we have not taken hold of this truth. And the perspective shift that we want to take hold of today as we wake into reality in the book of Isaiah is it's not about you. And everything that God's revealing through science, through his word, even through what we've done this morning... Communion is a reminder to us that it's not about us. We, we partook of communion, this remembrance of Jesus. And what does that teach us? That our righteousness and salvation can't earn us a place into heaven. That it took Jesus' sacrifice. We sang worship songs this morning together. What does that remind us of? There's a great big God out there deserving of our focus and our attention and our praise. And when we praise ourselves, when we glorify ourselves, we miss the point of our creation what God intended for us. And even the fact people were gathered in here, you're sitting next to, look to your left. Look to your right, okay? There's other people in here this morning, okay? And here's why God places this in community, even as the church. It's not a solo game for us. This is a community. It's a team sport activity. Why? Because it's not just about you. It's about supporting and loving and caring for each other. So everything that God has designed is pointing to the fact it's not about you. But we have this gravitational pull inside of us and our sinful nature towards selfishness that keeps taking us back to the spot inside where it is about us. And that is where God comes in through his word and today through his servant Isaiah. And he sets our perspective straight. 
And where we come to when we look at God's word is we come to not an egocentric view, but we come to a theocentric view. And here's what that means. Theos is the Greek word for God. Theology, then, is the study of God. So you see the prefix theo. Well, a theocentric view of reality is the realization that God is the center of your existence. And this is where God wants us to get to, a perspective that sees our true nature, that it's not about us, it's about how we can arrange and surrender every piece of our life until God is is fixed at the center and everything that happens in our life revolves around him. And it's amazing because there are a few people in the Bible that model that well. I mean, Jesus models it perfectly. But today, if you'll turn to Isaiah chapter 49, we're going to find that this is God's call and God's purpose for this section in Scripture is to point us to the fact that it's really all about God. And Isaiah takes hold of that. And if we take hold of that today, we can awaken to a reality that will change the rat race that is our hundred-year span on this earth to try to carve out some semblance of satisfaction or meaning or significance. Because when we look at God's word, we realize that that is a race of vanity. And that that all is going to end in flames if we go that path. But God has something much better for us. So Isaiah chapter 49. And one thing we've been talking about recently in the book of Isaiah is God has revealed that he has a servant set aside. And Lance has explained this extremely well in the last uh, couple months. That the servant of the Lord in the book of Isaiah is whoever is knighted to do God's will for a time or for a season. And so that sometimes the nation of Israel is referred to as the servant of the Lord. Sometimes it's Isaiah. He's the prophet. He's the one who's been chosen, anointed by God to be the mouthpiece to his people. And we see that the servant of the Lord that's hinted at as we get into this very rich section of Isaiah in these next 10 chapters, the servant of the Lord is not just someone presently, but someone they're looking forward to in the future called the Messiah, the chosen one. And there are prophecies and predictions in the book of Isaiah that outline a perfect picture of what the Messiah will be. And Jesus perfectly fulfills that when he comes. And so we understand that there, there are these three people, the, the Israel, Isaiah, and Jesus, who we're talking about as a servant. And even sometimes God goes crazy. And like Lance says, he's calling his shots. And he uses the enemies of Israel even, Babylon. He uses them to come and carry off the Israelites. And he says that these people... The Assyrians, the enemies of of my people, are even my servants when they carry out my discipline, when they carry out my will and my work. And so I'll frame it up for you, try to keep you all in the the right mentality of which servant we're talking about as we go through this. But uh, usually when there's a prophecy involved, there's a current fulfillment. And so for us today, we're starting from the perspective of Isaiah. God is speaking about Isaiah. Isaiah is telling the nation, I'm the servant of the Lord. But there are going to be times in here where you go, wait a second, that sounds a whole lot like Jesus. And that's, that foreshadowing and that illusion is simply the complexity and the beauty of Scripture and prophecy. That sometimes it's hard to tell who he's talking about here. But uh, Isaiah is, we're, our understanding, a current fulfillment of this for the people. But the Messiah will be a more perfect, complete fulfillment of this in the future. And without further ado, let's jump into Isaiah chapter 49 and I'll explain to you. You'll see very quickly what the correlation is. So let's read together. Starting in chapter 49, verse 1. This is, again, the voice of Isaiah speaking here. He says, Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. Let's just stop there for a second. This is a a worldwide call Isaiah is giving here. He says, From coast to coast, you coasts, you islands, all nations understand this. God has appointed me for a purpose. And Oftentimes in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah would say, God picked me out before I was born for a special cause, for a special purpose. 
And isn't it amazing that, that it says that, that the Lord called me from the womb before he was born. And this validates that life in the scriptures doesn't just begin at birth, but it begins at conception. And that God has a plan and a will for even the tiniest of babies. He's got life planned for them. And when we abort life before it's able to take place, then it's, it's, a, it's cutting off God's plan for them through human selfishness. And so that's just kind of an aside about the sanctity of life, even as we find it in the Old Testament. But God has set aside Isaiah for a purpose and a plan. And Isaiah recognizes that. He says that from the body of my mother, he named my name. When God gives you a name and a purpose and a plan, it means that you're significant. And he is, he's called us each by name. He knit us together in our mother's womb, it says in the Psalms. Let's go verse 2. Isaiah says, He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver he hid me away. You guys out there, this part's for you today, okay? So, swords and arrows, guys, all right? It doesn't get much better than this in the Bible. And so, uh, we men, you know, I actually have a short sword, like a Roman-style short sword. I should have brought it today. It would have been so much fun to play with. <laughs> I can't believe I just, just realized that I didn't bring that. And so, but what's the purpose of a sword? You know, you don't, you know, throw a sword across the room to try to get somebody. A sword is meant for close combat, right? And a sword is, is what you go to when you come up close to people. And Isaiah is saying, God made me, first of all, a sword. My mouth is a sword. And that's a play on words. In the Hebrew, the word for mouth and for sword are kind of similar. And so he says, you know, I've been given a sharp tongue. And what's the purpose of that sword? It's to give God's truth to his people. And we read, we read elsewhere in the New Testament that, that God's word is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. So sharper than any sword is the word of God because it pierces and it can come right to the heart of things. And now he's got this sword, basically the symbolic sword of his mouth, of his words, the truth he's bearing. And that's meant to bring close the words and the judgments of the Lord. And he says not just that, he's hid me away, he's saving me for a purpose, but he also made me a polished arrow. And I'm a, I'm a Lord of the Rings fan, I'm not going to lie to you guys. And so if I get to pick somebody I get to be in Lord of the Rings, I'm Legolas. Why? Because that guy's untouchable. You can't even get close to that guy. He can reach out and touch somebody from so far away. And that's the purpose of an archer. That's the purpose of an arrow is it goes far to bring truth, you know, well, to bring destruction in the case of a real arrow. But for him, he's bringing God's truth to the furthest coastlands. He's saying that God has picked me. He's polished me. He's put me away. He's saving me for a purpose here. And we're going to see how far that truth goes in just a minute. But this is the beauty of what he's done here with Isaiah. And here's the call in verse 3. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. So you go, wait a second, I thought you said that Isaiah was the servant. Why are you saying Israel is now the servant? Well, for the last few chapters, God has been putting basically Israel on the, on the restoration block. He's been saying, you guys are going to restore my purposes, my plan, I love you guys. But what we know from Israel is that they continually fall short of God's plan and God's purpose. And they don't get to fulfill the actual bringing about of restoration. And so now God's saying, I'm calling apart my prophet. Because my prophet's going to bring my words. And pretty soon we're going to see in just a few short chapters that the fulfillment of the true servant of the Lord is Jesus. But metaphorically speaking, Isaiah now has the, the mantle of the calling of Israel on him. And he's saying to Isaiah, you're my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. And it's interesting to me, because if I'm a shiny sword and I'm a polished arrow, the tendency for me is going to be to think, man, I'm pretty cool, right? Because we get this complex sometimes. Look how wonderful we are. Look at our gifts. Look at our talents. Look how God has made us. And sometimes when you find yourself finding that sweet spot and getting to use the gifts that God has given you, whatever the case may be. I mean, it's amazing to see Bridgeway Bounty Farmer's Market there. 
You can be a great agricultural producer and be used by God in amazing ways. So there's every single way that we can be used by God. But when we start to say, wow, look how awesome we are as we use our gifts. And I don't think that's the heart of anybody in our congregation, but that's the temptation that happens as we serve. As Satan wants to turn it in, he starts to say, wow, you're doing a great job there. We start to say, thank you very much. You know, I am pretty amazing, actually, if I think about it. And we start to steal the glory that God shaped us to give him. And that's something we have to understand here. And Isaiah gets it right. He doesn't have an egocentric view of what it is to be a servant of God. He has a theocentric view of what it is to serve God. And he says that God says, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. That's the purpose of your existence is to glorify God and not to glorify yourself. To not draw attention to yourself, but to bring glory to God, the true, holy Lord of the universe. Let's read on in verse 4. All this wonderful stuff God says about Isaiah, and it's amazing because verse 4 is in contrast to that. And Isaiah says in verse 4, But I said, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity. You go, wait a second, dude. Didn't you just say that you are the sword of the Lord, a polished arrow? You know, you're awesome. God has called you his servant. And Isaiah is saying, yeah, but I've failed. I've spent my life for, for nothing. That word vain means emptiness. I've spent my life for emptiness. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. And that word vanity is this word. It's breath. It's, it's a vapor. How temporary is a breath? And he says, this is the sum of my life. The significance of it amounts to basically a breeze in the air. And sometimes, don't you feel like this? Isn't it encouraging to see someone like Isaiah feeling down and a little bit depressed about his significance in life? Isn't it encouraging sometimes that, that though we struggle and strive to serve the Lord, that sometimes we feel like we don't amount to a whole lot at the end of the day? And it's amazing because this mentality here of, of people who are truly and humbly serving God, there comes a point in time you go, man, <laughs> this is hard. God, I'm tired. I don't know. Is, is this making any difference whatsoever? And if we judge by our human perspective, an egocentric perspective, you start to go, man, I'm worn out. I'm taking a break. You know, I'm calling, I'm calling, I'm calling a timeout. I'm going to sit the bench for a while. And that's not how we judge our success. In fact, God is the only one worthy of judging our success. And he says in his, in his despair, at the beginning of verse 4, he couples it with hope. In the end of verse 4, he says, yet surely my right is with the Lord. It means my judgment is with the Lord. God will judge my works in their worth. He says, my recompense with my God basically means my reward, my wages are with God. It's not up to me to say what significance my life is. And as you serve and as you try to shape a godly family and raise up godly children and to serve God with the gifts you've been given, there will be times when you will feel discouraged because you won't feel like you're making a hill of beans difference in the world. But the reality is, is that God has called us to faithfulness that's the entrustment he's given us is to walk in faithfulness. And God is the one who judges the eternal consequences. And you won't get to see. You won't get to see and stand on a high mountain and look back over your life probably and see the legacy of your faithfulness. It's up to us to trust in God that he will verify, that he will reward, and that he will rightly judge every person for what they've done. And this is a theocentric perspective. This is Isaiah's view. And he goes on in verse 5. He says, And now the Lord says, and it's funny because he says this, but he interrupts God right now <laughs> to say how awesome God is. He, says like, he goes like this. He says, and now the Lord says, he's like, you know, the Lord, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, that Israel might be gathered to him, 
For I'm honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He's just going off because he thinks God's amazing. You're allowed to do that sometimes, okay? Verse 6, he says, this is now the, the Lord's words. God says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So what's God saying here? It's pretty funny because what's about to happen here is something the Jews did not expect. Because they were thinking, oh, Lord, save us from our oppression. When will you ever come and deliver us? And God says, deliverance, that's easy. He says, it's too light of a thing for me to just bring back Jacob and restore you guys. That's a piece of cake. Even in the midst of your rebellion, I can bring you guys back in the snap of my fingers. He says, I'm not going to use the servant of the Lord just to bring back Israel. But he throws a curveball and he says that this, this servant will be a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. This is something the Jews did not see coming because they've been set apart from the world. The heathen, uncircumcised Gentiles, these people were not allowed up in Jewville, okay? Don't have them in the temple. Don't have them in your house. Don't talk to them. Don't touch them. These people are they're, they're unclean people. And all of a sudden, God says that he's going to take his servant and make his servant a light to the nations, which is literally to the Gentiles. And they go, wait a second. I don't know if I'm comfortable with that. I don't know if I want people eating hot dogs around my children. You know, I don't know if I want to go to church with people who are uncircumcised, Philistine, heathen people. And the Jews, you know, kind of balked at this. And it was shocking and surprising to them that when Jesus gives his marching orders to his disciples, that he says, you will be my witnesses in Judea, in Jerusalem, in Samaria, and where? To the ends of the earth. And they go, well, that's probably just poetic. <laughs> he mostly means the Jews. He's talking about the Jews to the ends of the earth. And it's crazy because as the Holy Spirit begins to unleash the New Testament community in Acts chapter 2 and following, what we see is that God's plan for salvation is not just and has never just been for the Jews, but through Jesus Christ and his global cleansing of sins for those who call upon the name of the Lord, he has opened up an opportunity for every person under heaven to come to know him. Anyone who would confess his name. And he says, you'll be my witnesses now. And you'll go to the ends of the earth. And here they are. Imagine, this is Acts chapter 13. Paul and Barnabas show up in a town called Antioch. And as was their custom, they go into a synagogue, which is Jew church, okay? And they're like, hey, everybody. And they're like, hey, we've got some special guests. Paul, Barnabas, stand up. Why don't you tell us a little bit about, about the Lord? Testify, because these are clearly learned people. They're passionate. They're like, share a little bit. They're like, you asked for it. <laughs> so Messiah, you know who's coming? Well, he came, and, and the Jews in Jerusalem killed him, but it's Jesus Christ, and he's raised from the dead, and he's the one. And furthermore, it's awesome, because now salvation is not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles, too. And what they do is they quote, Paul actually quotes from Isaiah chapter 46, in verse 9, and he says, this is it. I'm sorry, 49 verse 6, he says, I am right now fulfilling this. I am a light now to the Gentiles. I'm a light right now telling you guys that this is what's happening. The kingdom of God is expanding here. And this is significant because this is a paradigm shift that changes everything. It's a new reality. And it's the fact that everyone's invited and everyone's included in the call of God. And here's why I'm going off on this, on this rant right now because the funny thing is, is that God's call and God's commission has gone out to the ends of the earth, but we have a hard time taking the gospel to our neighbors. And that's sad because guess who's the fulfillment of this in our present day? Jesus put that great commission on the church, on his disciples. And it's not up to us. 
Like it wasn't up to the Jews to censor who gets a piece of God's grace that he's meeting out to the earth now through Jesus Christ. And it's not up to us because we don't like the way that our neighbor looks or the things that they do or maybe what their ethnicity is or how they behave or their moral choices. Just because we don't like what they do doesn't mean that God doesn't love that person and isn't wanting us to be a message and a light still to the world around us. Because we're not supposed to be hidden underneath a bush. We're supposed to be a city on a hill shining. And it's sad because God, if you've been to Winco recently, you realize God has brought the nations to our doorstep, church. We don't have to go any place anywhere. It's a beautiful thing. Sacramento is a diverse population of people. You don't even have to get outside the state of California to bring Christ to the nations now. And that's beautiful. You hear, you hear four different languages being spoken in Walmart when you go. And that's an amazing thing. But who are we to say, because that person's different, because they look different or act different or wear different clothing than us, that we're not going to engage that person with the gospel? That's not our right to do it. We're not to censor the grace of God. We're to be people who aren't egocentric, afraid, showing fear and favor. We're supposed to be theocentric and said, man, I don't, I don't get you at all, but I know God calls me to serve you. God calls me to wash your feet and to show you the love of Christ. That's what we're being reoriented with here in the book of Isaiah. That's the truth of God's grace and God's love and God's light. And it was as comfortable for them, as uncomfortable for them as it is for us today. But nonetheless, it's our calling. And so God's servants are those who bear his light to the ends of the earth so that everyone who calls on his name might be saved. And that's us. Let's, let's be about that. Let me paraphrase for you verses 7 through 13 as we go on. God's continuing to give hope to his people. And he says, Though you are despised and humiliated now, it says, Israel, I get it. You guys are small. You guys feel beat up. I get it. I will humble those very soon who have humbled you. I will protect my people and uphold my covenant. I will restore my people and gather them again from afar. God says, my hope is coming. And when Israel hears that, their response in verse 13 is celebration. And it says, read to me, verse 13, Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. You go, wait a second. Is that supposed to be in Isaiah? Is this in this judgment? That sounds like the Psalms. Like, what is that rejoicing all about? Well, it's because anytime God's salvation comes to your neighborhood, your right response is joyful response. In this picture, the heavens exult and sing down to the furthest star in the galaxy. The mountains break forth into singing. Why? Because it's a beautiful thing when God restores and reaches out to his people. And what hope we have today, because when you feel afflicted, when you feel like you're at the end, God has comfort and compassion for his people. And all we have to do is remember God's promises, that he's faithful. And the problem is we're very forgetful. Verse 14 shows that. As we read on, this is Zion. This is Israel's response to God's promise he just gave them. In verse 14 it says, But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. And if you're sitting in exile, if you're sitting, you know, far away from your homeland in Jerusalem with the walls broken down, you're going, yeah, well, this doesn't feel like salvation. This doesn't look very good. And sometimes we're there, aren't we? We go, God, we're faithful. We come to church every weekend. And we put the money in the plate. We sing the songs. We serve you. Why does this feel like this? I believe in your promises, but this suffering and this resistance seems to, seems to me to indicate this isn't your favor, God, but your punishment. Where are you, God? And sometimes in life, God takes us to these places where as we're walking along, you find yourself 
weary and tired. And you get to this point where you don't know if you can take one more step in faithfulness to God. And that doesn't mean that God isn't present and with you. And sometimes God purposely takes us to that point, to that line where our strength runs out so he can show us where our strength ends and his strength begins. And that's a beautiful convergence right there. When we realize that it's not about me and how awesome I am to serve God, it's not about my strength and my means, but God has taken me now to this point of brokenness, of dependence. And at this stage in the game, we go, oh, we surrender, and we fall into the arms of God, that we find his strength is what moves us and takes us forward. And sometimes it's the uncertainty, and sometimes it's the pain, and sometimes it's the darkness that we don't know what's going on. But it's our faithful response to God to say, it's not about my perspective, but about what you're doing right now, God, in this, that we fall into the arms of God. Because God never forgets his children. He's about to explain to them how deep and how far his love goes. They feel forgotten, but God says, I will never forget you. Verse 15, he draws this beautiful and poetic picture. He says, can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Think about that picture. We had a, a, a dear staff member who just uh, gave birth to her firstborn child last night. And I guarantee you that the first instinct of a new mother is not, man, can I get some In-N-Out burger over here? <laughs> you know, to get, Can we get out of here? Oh, yeah, bring the kid to whatever. That's fine, right? The instinct of a mother is to nurture their newborn child. And for some of you guys, you go, oh, it's not quite that pretty. But, <laughs> but nonetheless, the care of a parent for a child is supposed to be innate. You know, a mother cannot forget the child who is suckling and, and is getting sustenance in life from them. What mother would forget that? That would be the cruelest, most inhumane thing ever. God says that will never happen. He says, by that same token, that that love that a mother has for a newborn child, he says in verse 15, the second half, even though these may forget, yet I will not forget you. He says, you know what? A human mother might forget about their child, but guess what I'll never do? I'm your loving Heavenly Father, and I'll never, ever forget you and give up on you. He goes on in verse 16. He explains how far does his love go. In verse 16, it says this, Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. We think about that. We're like, man, that sounds familiar. Where have I heard that before? Where have I seen that imagery? And it's when Jesus came. And he says to doubting Thomas, when, when Thomas doesn't believe that Jesus has risen from the dead, he says, I'm not going to believe it till I see the holes in his hands, the scars in his hands and his side. And Jesus appears to Thomas and says, hey man, look for yourself. Because through his pain, through the crucifixion, Jesus engraved our names on his hands through his scars. And that will never wash off. And that will never go away. And God says, this is how much I love you, that I've engraved your name on my hands on my heart. I'll never ever leave you or forsake you. This is God's promise to his people. And in verse 17 through 21, he explains further. He says, I'll paraphrase it for you guys. All those that you thought were lost and miscarried, because you're, you're carried off into slavery, you're carried off into, into despondency. He says, those people you thought you lost were gone forever. I'm restoring the remnant of Israel. And more and more, the nations are going to be coming back and they will be bringing, the nations will be bringing your children back on their shoulders, your sons and your daughters. This will be the restoration that God shows his people. He says, you think I've abandoned you? You could not be more wrong. Be patient. Wait. My deliverance is at hand. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 1, he goes on. He's like, if this isn't clear enough that I love you and I care about you, here's another picture. Isaiah 50, verse 1 says, Thus says the Lord, 
Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I send her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Yo, whoa, time out. Did God just say divorce? Can he do that? Like, I thought divorce was, you know, not God's will. I thought that that covenant that was something God wanted honored forever. Is God throwing around the D word right now? Really to his people? Is that possible? When we look at God's people, what have we learned in the past few weeks in Isaiah? That God's people were not this faithful bride. They were adulterous. And they ran out and they prostituted themselves with idols and with other nations. And their faithlessness in that marriage covenant would have been, man, enough for God to say, you know what? You've broken this covenant. Here's your divorce papers. Get out of here. I'm done with you. I want to start over again. But the reality is that this is not what God's doing here. He says, where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? He says, you guys feel abandoned? Show me the paper. Show me the certificate where I divorced you. He says, it's not there. It doesn't exist. It legally, in that, t- in that time, you had to literally get a divorce paper. You had to have it signed, certified, had the reason that you divorced your spouse on there. And it's mostly for reasons of infidelity back in the day. And mostly the male divorcing the female because it was a male-dominated society, usually. And so the reality is that God's saying, listen, you can complain to me all you want that I've forsaken you, but, but check, the, check the paperwork. I've not divorced you. You've turned your back on me and run from me. I'm the faithful one calling you back again. And he says, where are the creditors to whom I've sold you? He says, show me the people that I sold you into debt for. Because God's people, what are they doing? They're racking up the sin. They're racking up the debt. It's like if you gave your kids, you know, the credit card or your wallet and said, yeah, go run them up, kids. You know, up to a certain point, you know, when your eighth credit card has been cut in half by your children, you go, wait a second, you're cut off. I'm so in debt right now. I don't know how I'm ever going to get out of this. And back in the day, there was a provision for that. No problem. Guess what you could do if you were in debt? Sell your child. (laughs) Sell your child into slavery. You got a creditor? You're over your head in debt? No problem. Just sell yourself into slavery and and you can pay off that debt over time. And so God says, listen, you guys have racked up so much debt, so much rebellion, but show me, who's the person I sold you to? To whom did I sell you to pay off your debt? And God says, I didn't sell you away. I didn't enslave you. You've chosen through your sin to enslave yourself, but he's got a plan for redemption to ransom and purchase back his people. He says at the end of uh, chapter 50, verse 1, he says, behold, for your iniquities you were sold. For your sin, for your shortcomings, you were sold. You sold yourselves into slavery. And for your transgressions, your mother was sent away. He says, yeah, for a while, you've been suffering from the consequences of your sin and rebellion. And God is gracious and loving and forgiving, consistently, unfailingly. But God does not spare us from the consequences from our sins. When we fall down, when we fall away, God puts us through a season of repentance. God puts us through a season of discipline, where we have to deal with it. God's forgiveness is total, complete, instantaneous, but it doesn't mean he wipes away the the long, hard road sometimes of healing or restoration or making amends that has to come as we make right what's gone wrong. But he says, here's the deal. You're sent away from a time, but this is not a permanent sentence for you. My grace is bringing you back again. And he begins to show them his love. In verse 2, he says, now you guys answer me this question then. If you got all these qualms with me i'm the lord he says in verse 2 why when i came was there no man why when i called was there no one to answer god says i came looking for you where were you my bride his bride was off in adultery god says when i came knocking when i came calling why wasn't there anyone there to answer because her back was turned on him god says i've been seeking you and you just keep running away 
And we can play this hide-and-seek game all we want to, but it doesn't mean I'm ever going to stop pursuing you, but you need to stop running from me. And people, let's be honest about this. We play that hide-and-seek game with God. God pursues us consistently, but in our sin and in our rebellion, we run away from God. And hear me when I say that God has never stopped pursuing you. God is that father that Luke talks about in the story of the prodigal son. God is that faithful father who's waiting and watching for us to turn and come back to him. And when we turn and repent of our sins and walk back towards God, he comes racing to meet us because his restoration and redemption are never far from us, no matter how far we feel we've fallen. And if you're in that place today, understand God's grace is meeting you where you're at right now. He's begging you to come back to him. And that's why he explains to them, he says in the end of verse 2, Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? He says, no. <laughs> I'm not handcuffed. I'm God. I can, I can seek you and find you wherever you may run from me. I can deliver you from any circumstance. I have the power to do that. And he, he explains his power at the end of verse 2. He says, behold, by my rebuke, by my words, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. At a word, I can rebuke the ocean, I can dry up the waters, and the fish lay there and die. He says in verse 3, I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. I can send the heavenly bodies into mourning if I want to, with my power. But that's not what he's doing here. Rather than blowing them away with I told you so's, and by intimidating them with his power, what he does is says, here's how I'm going to bring you back again, through my servants, through the Messiah. And we have a servant shift as we end this chapter. And the messianic imagery here is so rich because we see that, yeah, Isaiah is probably some fulfillment of this for them. But Jesus is just thick throughout this passage here. Read with me chapter 50, verse 4. It says, The Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught. It means God has given me instruction and wisdom. And when Jesus comes in the flesh, the Son of God, what do we hear them saying about the words of Jesus? They say, Wow. His words have authority. We've never heard anyone speak this way before. This guy's different than everyone else. God gives Jesus wisdom to speak the truth and to change the paradigm of the day. He says in the end of verse 4, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. What did Jesus do with his speech? He went and he strengthened those who are on the fringes, who were failing. He says, who is he who condemns you? Go and sin no more. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus brought a a message of of, uh, restoration to his people. It says at the end of verse 4, morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. What does Jesus say? He says, listen, I I get direct access to the Father. I hear the Father's will, and I do only what the Father has told me to do. Talk about a theocentric way of living. I don't just make it up as I go along here. I'm listening for God so I can walk in obedience to him. This is the messianic servant. In verse 5, The Lord has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. He says, I listened to God. I obeyed God, and thus I did not rebel. And Jesus is the only person who walked through this life with all the temptation, with all of the junk of this world, and he walked unstained and untainted. He did not trip. He did not bite when Satan lured him into sin. And Jesus was thus the perfect one, the righteous Lamb of God. And he was the only person fit to be the sacrifice for the sins of the world. And it's all being talked about here hundreds of years before it came to be. 
And so this is what God is doing here. And he says, and this is where it really blows my mind, that this is written in the Bible so long before Jesus came. Chapter 50, verse 6. This is the perfect servant. He says, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. Do you guys remember what Jesus endured for us as he was spread out around a post and his back was exposed and he did not turn away, but he endured every whip and every lash of that cat of nine tails as the Romans scourged and flayed the flesh from the back of Jesus. It's amazing. This is, this is the imagery he's using here. He says, I gave my back to those who strike. I volunteered for that job. I gave my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. Jesus turned the other cheek. And when, when this circumstance of disgrace came, and literally it says that in the court of, of Herod, uh, um, in, yeah, in the court of Herod, he was, he was humiliated. I'm looking for somebody with a big enough beard to grab a hold of, but I don't see anybody in the front row. <laughs> Last night there was a perfect beard, a flowing, beautiful beard. And I was like, oh, the perfect Jewish beard. And really for, I mean, I've got this scruff I wear around, but, but for a Jew... The, uh, for a male, it was a symbol of their honor, was to have a beard. And if you wanted to disgrace somebody, what would you do? You'd shave off their beard. Or worse, if you wanted to harm them, you would grab their beard and you'd pull out their hair. I can't even pluck a nose hair without crying, okay? <laughs> like, can you imagine the pain of this and the disgrace? And this is likely, it's not depicted every detail of what happened to Jesus. It could have easily happened that they were taking and ripping the very beard of Jesus out. And that's what he's enduring, is that scorn and that shame. And what does it say in verse 6 in the second half? I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. And they blindfolded Jesus, it says, and they struck him in the face and said, Prophesy, who hit you? And they spat on him and they disgraced him. And Jesus did not turn away for a second because he was enduring it for a higher purpose. And how did he do this? Verse 7 says, But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. The Lord God is strengthening Jesus in the midst of this. The Lord God is strengthening Isaiah through this call. The Lord God is strengthening you in the midst of the trial that you're going through right now so that you will not be disgraced. God's strength sees us through. And an egocentric view says, oh, what was me? I'm humiliated. But Jesus' view was, I'm going to glorify God even in this suffering right now. I'm not going to be deterred because God will strengthen me through this. And it says in the second half of verse 7, Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. What's a flint used for? A flint's used for, for striking a spark or for sharpening a knife. Jesus says, I have set my face like stone. And it doesn't matter what they bring at me, what they throw at me, what disgrace comes. I will stand firm and take it because it's God's will for me. What love. He says in verse 8, He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. He says, who's going to bring a charge that will actually stick to me, the perfect one of God? Bring it on. Come right now. I'll stand toe-to-toe with you. I have the power of the Lord behind me. I'm not afraid of you. He says, who is my adversary? The end of verse 8. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. And Jesus knew who the adversary truly was because he pointed to him constantly. And you and I need to know who the adversary in this life is because Satan, the devil, is the accuser. He's the adversary. And here's the deal. The adversary is not only tempting you into sin so that you fall, but he's keeping a log. Every thought, every sinful inclination, everything you've wandered or or pondered in the dark, everything that you've done and wished you could hide it forever, Satan is keeping track. And when you get to heaven, how big will your file of accusation be? 
When you stand before the Lord in judgment, and on that day it says that the accuser will come, and he will point, and he will jeer, and he will accuse, and the only thing that will excuse us from the sin and the guilt that is rightfully there is the accuser, the prosecutor, comes with more than enough case to convict us to an eternity of suffering and separation from God. The only thing that will save us is the fact that Jesus Christ took the pain for us, and he paid the price for us, so we could be declared not guilty. And when Satan's done, he's worn out and says, whew, so they're messed up, okay? It's like, there's like eight million sins, you know? And I know we've got all eternity, but what are you going to do about this? God's going to say, you know what? My record shows that, that they put their faith in my son, that their sins are washed away and they're forgiven. And he's going to say, welcome in, my child. And on that day, you won't be able to say, without the blood of Christ, let me in, I've been a good person. Let me in, I tried the best I could. Only thing that will get us through the gate that day will be the blood in the name of Jesus Christ. And if we've lived a faithful life for him, that's the promise of scripture. And so he says in verse nine, again, the, the suffering servant says, behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Who will declare me guilty? No one can. Jesus is perfect. Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Everyone who comes to stand against God's people will wear out eventually because God is more stubborn than you, than your accuser, than your sin. His love is unfailing. And lastly, he ends this section with a question and a challenge. In verse 10, he says, Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? And that's the question for us today. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Who of us comes when Jesus says, I bid you come and die, pick up your cross and follow me, Who is going to meet him in that invitation? Because that determines whether we're living an egocentric life. We say, no, I'm good. I live for my own thing here. Or we're going to put all that behind and count it as loss so we can follow Jesus Christ. And when he asks that question, he, he couples it with this invitation. Verse 10, he says, Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. He says, you feel like you're floundering? You feel like you're in the dark? Yeah, it's because you are. You can't light it by yourself. He said, you need my light in my life. And God says that his word is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path, that Jesus is the light. And so when we embrace him, when we invite light to come in, it changes us forever. And he, he lastly ends this section, which was so encouraging up to this point, with a major downer in verse 11. And it's a warning to those who would seek to light their own flame. And it says in verse 11, Behold, he's changing the tone here, all you who kindle a fire... Who equip yourselves with burning torches. Walk by the light of your fire. Go ahead, he says, I dare you. Light your own fire. Walk by the light of your own lamp. Pull out the flashlight app on your phone for life and and stumble along and see where that gets you here because this fire that's being kindled here is a rebellious fire. Literally, those burning torches are are firebrands. It could be flaming arrows. He's saying, this is a rebellion going on here. This is like pitchforks and torches. He says, walk by the light of your rebellious torch, he says. And he says, and this is what's going to happen at the end of the verse. He says, this you will have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. You go, man, that's harsh. But what's the reality we find? The reality we find is if we walk by our own light in this life, it's not going to end how we want it to because our wisdom won't take us far. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 25 says this. Proverbs says that there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. And here's where we awaken to reality this morning, church. There is a way that seems right to us. 
A way that seems wise and prudent and from our human perspective seems good. But that way in the end, if we stay that course, will end in our demise. Only when we put our faith and our trust in God will we be vindicated on the final day. And the final question that that poses to us is simply this. Whose light are you going to walk by? In your universe, are you going to allow the gravitational pull of selfishness to put you at the middle and to, and to play the game until you punch your card and go stand before the Lord and find that everything you've been living for is a disappointment? Or are you going to live with God at the center of your life, obeying him and following him?